Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus 16 will be our sermon text for this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be some on the table in the back. Uh, you should feel free to grab one from there. And uh, not only can you grab that for the service, but if you don't own a Bible, you should feel free to take that with you. Write your name in the front. Keep it, read it during the week, and bring it back week after week as we study God's Word together. Before we read Leviticus 16, let's pray together. Our Father, we do give you praise for the blood of Jesus, and we give you praise that we are cleansed by that blood. And Father, as we read Leviticus... I pray that you would teach us about that cleansing more and more, that you would cleanse our hearts uh, by faith as we trust in you, and that we would rest in the blood of Jesus, that we are now clean in your sight. I pray that uh, this chapter and and all of our studies in Leviticus would, would grow us in that confidence, in that faith, in that peace, that we are clean in your sight. Pour out your spirit on us this morning uh, to that end, that we would believe in what Jesus has done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Leviticus chapter 16, beginning with verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself, and shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil, and put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony, so that he does not die. He shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side, and in front of the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. 
Thus ye shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. So he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleannesses. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make the atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it, shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleannesses of the people of Israel. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel, and all their transgressions and all their sins. He shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness." Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and shall take off the linen garments that he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. And he shall bathe his body in water in a holy place and put on his garments and come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar and he who lets the goat go to Azazel shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and afterward he may come into the camp. And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. And he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement, wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly." And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. In a recent uh, episode of the radio news show Fresh Air, uh, Terry Gross was interviewing an author named Richard Russo, and they were discussing a character he wrote into one of his books, a character who did bad things. And Russo said this. He said, this character, Roy Purdy, I, I have to say, tested the limits of my empathy in ways that maybe no other fictional character has. And when I finished writing the Roy Purdy sections of this book, and then every time as I went through my numerous revisions, being inside his head made me feel unclean. And I would shower after my sessions where I was dealing with that character, not because he is the embodiment of evil, though he does incredibly evil things and takes enormous pleasure in it, but you feel unclean when you make something like that real because, of course, you find them in your experiences of life, the things that you have witnessed. And that was not a pleasant experience writing about Mr. Purdy in this book. Terry Gross asked, so did the showering help? 
And Rusa said, no, of course not. And Gross said, can't wash it away, can you? And he responded, there's no soap for that. There's no amount of hot water that cleanses you of that kind of, you know, knowledge of evil and its pleasures. If you listen closely to people, they, they know that sin makes us unclean. It, it, it's kind of amazing. I, I actually, maybe, maybe it's a perverse thing to say. I kind of like hearing that, that kind of thing on the radio because it confirms the truthfulness of God's word. God's word accurately describes the world in which we live. Sin really does make us unclean, and we know it. We also know that, that no soap, no amount of hot water can cleanse us of sin. Listen to what the prophet Jeremiah says. He says, though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord God. The prophet Jeremiah and NPR agree. You, you know that's God. <laughs> We all know that we are unclean. At some level, every person's conscience bears witness that there is something fundamentally wrong with me. I'm not what I'm supposed to be. And some people try to literally wash that off with soap and hot water, but it just becomes this fruitless work of cleansing the outside of the cup when the inside remains unclean. Others do the same thing by trying to put on a show or build a reputation or make the grades or accomplish the impossible. Whatever we can do to make our outside look clean, look good in the hopes that no one will notice what's inside. Others just try to bury their guilt, but it manifests itself in irritability and defensiveness and a driving need to always be right because you know deep down that you're wrong. Others drown their guilt in pleasure, right? Good pleasures, bad pleasures, sinful pleasures, self-destructive pleasures. It doesn't really matter so long as I'm distracted from the lingering guilt. So we all have our ways of, of managing our guilt and our shame. The irony is we're so focused on managing guilt and shame that we don't even see the fullness of the problem. It always gets worse before it gets better, doesn't it? See, the problem is not just personal, but it's relational and even cosmic. Our sin and our guilt and our shame don't just weigh on us, but they cripple our relationship to our Father, and they mar the world around us. The uncleanness of sin, as described in Leviticus, is like a contagion that infects everything we touch. Because of our sin, because our sin is an offense to the holiness of God, we can no longer dwell before him. And because our sin infects the world around us, he cannot dwell with us. See, the, the problem here, and, and really the, the presupposition of Leviticus, which I am getting to, uh, is that uh, we were made to dwell with God. We were created to find satisfaction in him. He is our life, our strength, our happiness, our joy, our meaning, and our purpose, our master. Our identity is wrapped up in him. And so if sin has so corrupted me and the world around me that, that I can, God cannot dwell with me, and if my sin is an offense to his holiness so that I cannot stand in his presence, then I have a crisis on my hands. 
I have a, an identity crisis, an existential crisis, an emotional crisis, right? I, the foundation of my life has been pulled out from under my feet, as it were, and now I'm left to just somehow create my own meaning and my own joy and my own identity and my own strength. An endeavor, by the way, which is ultimately futile. I was created to live in relationship to my Heavenly Father. And life will never make sense and will never work outside of that relationship. So, of course, there has to be some other way. If I can't just ignore the problem and try to build my own life, there's got to be something else. And there is. If, if my guilt could be removed, if I could somehow cleanse myself and my world, then communion with God could be possible again. I could know what it means to have a place in God's world once more. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Uh, we're going to look at that through uh, Leviticus chapter 16, kind of from a, a wide-angle lens. We're going to look at Leviticus 16 from Genesis to Revelation. That, that'll make sense, I hope. Uh, Leviticus 16 is about a day. It's about a day called uh, Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. And uh, we're going to see the importance of that day as it plays out throughout all of history. And so uh, you can see in your outline, uh, which is on the back of your bulletin, we're going to talk about the first day, cleansing the garden, the day of atonement, cleansing the tabernacle, the day of the cross, cleansing the church, the day of conversion, cleansing the heart, and the last day, cleansing creation. Genesis to Revelation, right? So first, the first day, uh, cleansing the garden. You know, we keep going back to the garden in our studies in Leviticus because Leviticus really only makes sense in light of the creation of the world, God's creation of the world, and the rebellion of humanity subsequent to that. You know, in Genesis 3, when hum humanity rebelled against God, they, uh, they heard God coming, and their first instinct was to hide. Our, our dog does that, actually. Our dog, Ruby, does that. Uh, if we come home and she's eaten something that she should not have eaten, she does not greet us at the door, uh, but she hides behind the table, which is our first clue that she's done something wrong. But it's possible, when we, when we look at Genesis 3, it, it's possible that we get the scene wrong, or at least we miss the, the weightiness of it. We read in Genesis 3 that Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day. And uh, we think, well, isn't that nice, right? God was coming to fellowship with his people walking in the garden. A cool breeze was blowing. And uh, Adam and Eve hear that and hide. And we say, well, sin has brought shame, which is true enough. And shame hinders their joy in their fellowship with God. God was coming to fellowship with them, but their sin... Uh, caused them to hide, their shame caused them to hide. But there's actually another way of reading the passage, another possibility. The sound of the Lord God walking in the garden could be the sound of coming judgment to Adam and Eve. And the cool of the day, the word cool is actually the word wind or spirit in Hebrew. And so you could translate it that God was coming in the spirit of the day. God was coming in the spirit of the day, as in the day, the day of the Lord which is so often referred to in Scripture, in which case it's actually saying God is coming in judgment as on the day of the Lord. And so Adam and Eve hide themselves, which would make sense. Um, in that case, it's very similar to what the book of Revelation says at one point when Jesus will return. We read this. 
Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Adam and Eve hide themselves because they're scared. God has come in judgment, and it terrifies them. God's judgment on sin, it's real, and it is scary, of course, God is holy. That's what sort of all of these different passages uh, assume or presume uh, in the background, that God is holy, that he's too pure to look on sin, that evil cannot dwell with God, says the psalmist. And in fact, uh, God promises to destroy the liar and the violent and to restore justice to the world. And so judgment does come to Adam and Eve. And I, I want to highlight just one aspect of that judgment uh, this morning, Adam and Eve, right, they've, they've defiled the Garden of Eden with their sin, and as a result, they're expelled from the Garden. They're cast out from God's presence. They're cast out from God's house. They're sent out east of Eden. God cleanses his Garden by removing the source of impurity, by removing humanity from before his presence. This is really the, the great problem that Leviticus was designed to answer, that we can no longer approach God because of our sin. And though God kicks humanity out of the house, as it were, he doesn't immediately go to divorce court, right? He, he seeks reconciliation with humanity. The tabernacle is designed so that Israel can be ritually cleansed by sacrifice and approach the God who has come to dwell in their midst in the tabernacle. The problem is, uh, Israel, like the rest of us, they just they keep on sinning. And over time, their sin and their ritual uncleanness defile the tabernacle. So they defile, Adam and Eve defile the garden and they get kicked out. Well, Israel keeps sinning and they defile the tabernacle. And here's what Leviticus 15.31 says, uh, after discussing all the rules of ritual uncleanness, which we talked about last week, Leviticus 15.31, close to the end, it says, Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. See, the danger is that if Israel's uncleanness goes unaddressed, their uncleanness will defile God's house, and God will punish them for it. Which brings us then to the Day of Atonement and the cleansing of the tabernacle. Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, was designed to cleanse the tabernacle. Leviticus 16, verse 16 says this, Thus he, that is Aaron, shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. Or again, verse 19, which is talking about the altar, says, and, and he, Aaron, shall sprinkle some of the blood on it, on the altar, with his finger seven times, and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleannesses of the people of Israel. See, see, the goal of the Day of Atonement was to cleanse God's house so that God could continue to dwell in the midst of his people without judging them. The Day of Atonement has this rather elaborate ceremony, and it, it actually can be outlined fairly simply. There are three main things that happen. There are the purification offerings, two purification offerings. Then there's this 
section about the scapegoat, which we'll get to that, what's commonly called the scapegoat. And then there are burnt offerings at the end. So you have purification offerings, you have the scapegoat, you have the burnt offerings. So you have first, Aaron is to offer these two sin offerings or purification offerings, one for himself and one for the people. He burns incense uh, in the holy place to create a cloud. Verse 2 says, God will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. And, and the cloud is actually possibly intended to hide God's presence, right? Because um, verse 13 says, the cloud protects Aaron from death when he comes into the most holy place. Okay, why would, why would Aaron die by coming into the most holy place? Well, if God is appearing to him, scriptures repeatedly say, no one can see God and live. So the cloud kind of uh, functions twofold. It, it, God appears in it, but it, at simultaneously it obscures him so that Aaron doesn't die by coming into God's presence. So Aaron takes the blood of the purification offerings and he enters into the most holy place, into the cloud, and he sprinkles the blood on and before the ark and then on and uh, before the altar outside and then possibly in the holy place as well. Okay, why does he sprinkle blood on all of these different things? Well, the blood purifies. The idea is that this blameless bull or goat without blemish has died in the place of the blameworthy Israel. The blood of that goat, which represents its life, is a sign that the sin has been atoned for. So the application of that blood cleanses whatever had become unclean because of the sin. Right? The sin has been atoned for by the blood, by the life being given up. So the blood is like a cleansing agent, which ritually uh, takes away the uncleanness that had taken hold in, in God's house. And the giving of the life removes the guilt of sin. The application of the blood removes the uncleanness caused by the sin. And then you have verse 20. Verse 20 reads, And when Aaron has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. See, there's this other goat, uh, which is often called the scapegoat. Some translations uh, the first English translations called it the scapegoat. According to verse 5, these two goats together, the, the one that is put to death as a sin offering and this live goat, together they represent uh, the sin offering. But the one goat dies, its blood is brought into God's presence in the most holy place, but the other goat does not die. The high priest lays both his hands on the head of the live goat, confessing all the sins of Israel. In fact, there are three words used in verse 21, iniquities, transgressions, and sins. Right? Just in case you, one word wasn't enough, uh, all three are mentioned. The point is that everything that Israel has possibly done wrong is confessed over this goat. And uh, every aspect of sin is laid on the head of this animal. And then they send it away. Verse 22 says, The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. See, the, the sins of Israel are being symbolically transferred to this goat, and as the goat heads east out of the tabernacle, the sins are removed from Israel. And notice a couple of things. Uh, the one goat symbolically comes into God's presence as his blood is brought into the most holy place. The other goat symbolically is removed from God's presence. One goat goes west into the most holy place. The other goat goes east into the wilderness. And there's something mysterious in Leviticus 16, right? And that is the word Azazel, which you heard me read, and some of you looked at your translations and thought the word Azazel is not there. 
because often it's translated as scapegoat. One goat becomes an offering for the Lord, according to verses 8 and 10. The other goat is for Azazel. And uh, the question is, what, what does Azazel mean? There, there are a couple options. I, I won't spend too much time here, but Azazel could be a place. Some people thought it was a place. Uh, it, it could actually be two separate Hebrew words, meaning the goat that goes away, which is uh, where the English word scapegoat comes from, actually. Uh, someone translated Azazel as scape, actually is scapegoat, um, which then the E was dropped and it became scapegoat. Uh, and so early translations reflect that understanding. They see it as scapegoat. Uh, or Azazel could actually be the proper name for a demon. The truth is, no one really knows which of those three options is best. If it's the latter, though, if it's a demon, you, you would have to ask, okay, why would Israel be sending a goat to a demon named Azazel in the wilderness? Well, it's a good question. Uh, the, the idea could be that uh, the, uncleannesses and the uncleanness and the sins don't belong in God's temple, don't belong before Yahweh, so send them to the demons where they belong. If that is really what it's talking about, it would almost be a way of mocking the demonic forces that might be out there. Right? They're the ones who get the uncleannesses uh, so that Yahweh's house can be cleansed. Whatever the case, one goat comes west into the most holy place, the other goat goes east into the wilderness. Well, think back again. Remember what happened to Adam and Eve when they sinned. They were sent east, out of the garden, into the wilderness. God was cleansing the garden from their sin, and here Israel's sin is laid on a substitute who sent east out of the tabernacle into the wilderness. And again, God is symbolically cleansing the temple from Israel's sin, removing their sin from his presence. Of course, there's a difference here. I mean, with Adam and Eve, right, they're, they're sent out east of Eden, right? But here, one goat goes east. The other, though, comes west. The, the, the geography is actually relevant, right? Uh, it's symbolic here. See, though the substitute, through the substitute, fellowship with God is restored. And the high priest comes into God's presence to present the blood. And God appears in the cloud over the mercy seat. And fellowship with God is restored in that moment. In that moment, you have the most holy man in Israel in the most holy place on the most holy day meeting with the most holy God. And to show that fellowship has been restored, the high priest finally, in, in the end, offers two burnt offerings, one for himself, one for the people. And uh, maybe you remember the burnt offerings are where the whole animal is offered up to God, burned on the altar, so that the whole animal ascends to God in smoke, as it were. And the offerer, symbolically, has communion with God through the offering, which goes up and becomes a pleasing aroma to the Father. So, so the idea is, through this sacrifice, I am once again a pleasing aroma to the Father. God is pleased with me. And so ending with these burnt offerings shows that Israel has been accepted, that communion has been restored through the events of this day. And so we have these three main things going on. The purification offering cleanses God's house so that he can dwell with his people. The live goat removes the sin and the guilt from the people out into the wilderness. And the burnt offering shows that communion has been restored. The people have been accepted. They're now a pleasing aroma to their God. And then the question is, what does all this have to do with us? Well, we're getting to that, right? We're looked at, we've looked at the first day, the cleansing of the garden, the Day of Atonement, the cleansing of the tabernacle, 
And now we're going to look at the day of the cross and the cleansing of the church. And in some ways, it's easy for us as Christians to see how Jesus cleanses the church by his blood. We, we sing about that. We read about that in the New Testament. He dies, the blameless for the blameworthy. He offers his life in our place. Uh, by offering his life in the Old Testament system, it, you, you, it, the life was represented by the blood, right? So by offering his blood, uh, our sin is atoned for, our guilt is removed, our uncleanness is washed away. But there are actually Christians who think that the Day of Atonement has nothing to do with the cross. The Day of Atonement, they say, was about cleansing the tabernacle from uncleanness. The cross is about cleansing people from sin. Well, uh, as we've seen, there, there is a difference between ritual uncleanness and the moral pollution of sin. Uh, but... Really, the moral pollution of sin is the very thing that ritual uncleanness symbolizes. So that part isn't much of a distinction uh, because the one is symbolic of the other. But, but the, it's the other distinction that people emphasize. That is, some say the Day of Atonement was a, uh, deals with the cleansing of the tabernacle. It's about cleansing God's house. It's not about cleansing the people of Israel. It's about cleansing the, the, the building, the structure, the, the, the furniture in the tabernacle. And therefore, it has nothing to do with cleansing the people, they say. Well, that actually misses the point on, on two counts. First, the text doesn't exclusively talk about the cleansing of the tabernacle. Leviticus 16.22 talks about removing the iniquities of the people. Leviticus 16.30 says, Atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. Right? Not just the tabernacle, but you. But, but secondly, and, and more importantly, the New Testament tells us that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. See, yes, the tabernacle, the, the temple is ritually cleansed on the Day of Atonement. It's the tabernacle, not primarily the people, but primarily the structure, the building. But Jesus has made us, the church, into a holy temple in which God is dwelling by his spirit. We are cleansed, not ritually by the blood of bulls and goats, but spiritually by the blood of Jesus as God's house. Jesus shed his blood for our sins so that we might be a clean, a pure dwelling place for the Father through the Spirit. That's why we have been cleansed, so that God can dwell in us. And think about what Jesus did after he died. What did Jesus do after he died? Well, he rose from the dead. That's one thing he did. Uh, Hebrews tells us, though, that as a high priest... As the high priest goes once a year into the most holy place, Hebrews 9 says, When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Now, you remember when Aaron gets into the most holy place, he burns incense, to create a cloud, and God meets with Aaron in the cloud. And the people don't see that. They just see Aaron head into the holy place and then disappear from their sight in this cloud. But Aaron goes in there to make intercession for them. Well, in Acts chapter 1, we have this story of Jesus' ascension, where Jesus ascends into heaven. He ascends into the greater and more perfect tent, in the words of Hebrews, a tent not made with hands, not of this creation. He ascends into the holy place, right? The very throne room of God. And what does Acts chapter 1 say? Acts chapter 1 says, As they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. 
As Aaron goes into the holy place, out of the sight of the people, into the cloud, bringing the blood of the sacrifice to make intercession for the people, so Jesus went into the heavenly holy place, out of the sight of the disciples, into the cloud, bringing his own blood with him to make intercession for us. This, by the way, this is what the book of Daniel is talking about in Daniel chapter 7, uh, verse 13. You, you may be familiar with Daniel 7. Uh, it's that this uh, image of the ancient of days and the Son of Man coming to him. And it says this, And behold, with clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. As the high priest came to uh, the Father on a yearly basis into the cloud and met with the Father, so Jesus has gone into heaven for us to meet with the Father on our behalf. After Jesus offered himself for our sins as our great high priest, he entered into the cloud, into the heavenly holy place, to stand before the mercy throne of the Father and to say, my blood has been shed, atonement has been made, forgive the sins of your people. And Jesus then, doesn't end there, according to Acts, Acts 2.33 says, being therefore exalted to the right hand of the Father, he received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit and then poured out the Spirit on his people. So Jesus goes into heaven. He presents his blood to the Father. The Father gives him the gift of the Spirit, which Jesus then pours out on the church. Why does Jesus pour out the Spirit after his ascension? Well, it's the temple has now been cleansed. God could now take up residence, not just in the midst of, but in his people. God, Jesus has cleansed the temple God now comes to dwell with his people through the Spirit. And you see why the ascension of Jesus is so important. Jesus died, he rose, and then he entered into the heavenly most holy place to present his completed work on our behalf that we might become a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So you have the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, which accomplished our salvation once and for all. But while Jesus accomplished our salvation for the, the salvation of his people at the cross, our experience of that, right, my experience of that and, and your experience of that, our enjoyment of the benefits of Christ's work don't happen at the cross, but they happen at our conversion. Which brings us to the next day, the day of conversion. The day of each one of our conversions, the day of any individual's conversion and the cleansing of their hearts by faith. You know, before you trust in Jesus, the scriptures say that you, you are outside of Christ. Uh, everything that Christ has done for you is of no benefit to you as long as you are outside of Christ, as long as you are not trusting in him. So Peter says in Acts that, that upon faith in Christ, God cleanses our hearts by faith when we believe in him. And here's what that means. Only by trusting in the blood of Jesus, our atoning sacrifice are we made clean? You may have been in the church all your life, but apart from faith in Jesus, you are still unclean, still in your sin. Do you still feel the stain of sin? Do you feel like no soap, no water could ever cleanse you of your guilt and shame, could ever remove the pollution of sin? Maybe it's because you haven't yet put your faith in Jesus. Maybe you haven't trusted in his cleansing blood. Or maybe you have, but you've forgotten. You have forgotten that you have been cleansed. 
And you need to remember that and put your trust in him again and again, every day, renewing your faith in Jesus, renewing your trust in his cleansing blood. Well, there were two goats on the Day of Atonement. One was brought near to the Father through sacrifice west into the Holy of Holies. The other was cast out east into the wilderness, bearing the sins of God's people. One goes east, one goes west. Do you know that through the sacrifice of Jesus, if I can twist the the imagery a little bit, as far as the east is from the west, so far have your sins been removed from you. See, when you confess your sins, as was done on Yom Kippur, when you trust in the blood of the purification offering, you are cleansed, and your sins are removed, and you are accepted by the Father, a pleasing aroma to Him as one of His children in whom He delights. Well, we've talked about the first day, cleansing of the garden, the the day of atonement and the cleansing of the tabernacle, the day of the cross and the cleansing of the church and the day of our conversion and the cleansing of our hearts through faith so that we become a pleasing aroma to our Father. Now let's talk about the last day and the cleansing of creation. See, Jesus is not done. Human sin polluted the garden and with it really the whole creation, we are told, has been subjected to futility according to Romans 8. That is, sin has consequences. Not just for us, but for the world in which we live. Sin makes unclean. Sin pollutes. I I didn't talk about this much last week because of time, but look at, turn back to Leviticus 15, verses 4 through 12. It talks about a man with an unclean discharge. And just listen to this. Verse 4 begins, Every bed on which the one with the discharge lies shall be unclean, and everything on which he sits shall be unclean, and anything who touches his bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And whoever sits on anything on which the one with the discharge has sat shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And whoever touches the body of the one with the discharge shall wash his clothes and bathe himself with water and be unclean until the evening. And if the one with the discharge spits on on someone who is clean, then he shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And any saddle on which the one with the discharge rides shall be unclean. And it goes on, right? It just keeps going. What becomes unclean on account of that man's uncleanness? Anything he touches and anybody who touches anything he touches. You know, we actually, I think we... On some level, we appreciate in our culture what, that what happens in a specific place gives that place significance. You know, we erect memorials all over the place to commemorate what happened in a given spot. And sometimes it's good things, but most often it's bad things. And the bad thing then marks that space for us. We have this sense that something happened here, and, and that kind of changes this spot. When Adam and Eve sinned, it didn't just affect them. The world became an unclean place marked by sin so that God could no longer dwell in their midst. On some level, the creation itself groans, Romans says, groans to be freed from its uncleanness and corruption. The tabernacle was cleansed ritually by the blood of the the goats and the bulls to create a kind of clean space for God, a holy space where God could dwell with his people. And presently, the church has been cleansed by the Spirit, applying the blood of Jesus to create a clean space, a holy space for God to dwell in his people. But one day, this whole world will be cleansed. 
You know, Noah's flood didn't quite get rid of sin, did it? One day when Jesus returns, when Jesus comes out of the heavenly holy place, just as Aaron came out and sent the sin goat out of the camp into the wilderness, the scriptures teach that Jesus will, if you'll, again, pardon the blurring of the imagery, Jesus will separate the sheep from the goats as far as the east is from the west, right? And the goats he will send out of his presence. You know, uh, one of my favorite passages is, is Revelation 21. And uh, we often, when we read it, we often stop at verse 4, but the passage keeps going. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8, say, say this, uh, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Even in the midst of all that sort of beautiful language of the new creation and the renewal of the world, we're told that there will be a final separation on the final day. Right? There were two goats. One was brought near and one was sent out. And this idea is repeated in Revelation 22, which says, uh, verses 14 and 15, says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. See, in these passages, God is saying, in his renewed world, there will be no uncleanness. Everything will be good and pure and cleansed. But that means that for the one goat, it will be removed from the camp. And for some people, they will be removed from the camp. In these passages, there are two groups of people. Uh, the groups are divided, though, not actually by good and bad. That's what's interesting. It's not divided by the good and the bad. The groups are divided between the bad and the bad who have washed their robes. See, you can be clean. Not because you've cleaned up your act, but because you can be washed in the blood of Jesus. Your heart can be cleansed by faith. And you can become a part of a dwelling place for God by his spirit. And then we will dwell forever with him in his renewed and cleansed world, seeing him face to face when every tear will be wiped away. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we thank you for the hope that we have of dwelling with you forever in a cleansed world, a cleansed where there is no uncleanness, no sin, no rebellion, no pain, no suffering, no hurt, place that is pure and good, a place where we can live without guilt, without shame, in your presence forever, delighting in you, knowing that you delight in us because of your Son. Father, give us a hope in that day. 
Help us to live now in a way that reflects the, the cleanness of that day, in a way that honors you and is pleasing to you by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.